All right, well, this is our last lecture on chapter 21 uh, of the Confession of the Faith. It's actually, I think it's my 15th. Yeah, it's my 15th. Um, and man, I, I have to say, honestly, I really like justification and sanctification. This is like, it's a, it's a, it's a really close call, which one has now been my, my favorite chapter to teach on. This is definitely up there. <clears throat> Well, before we wrap up this chapter, I want to talk a little bit more about the idea of implicit faith, since it is mentioned in the Confession in paragraph 2 of chapter 21. We have discussed this a little bit uh, before in chapter 14 of Saving Faith, but I want us to, to see this a little bit more. Um, we'll, we'll look at some scripture to really kind of um, support it more. And then we'll also maybe think of what we mean and what we don't mean when we say we reject uh, the Catholic, the Roman, I don't even want to call them Catholic, the papist idea, the Roman idea of, of implicit faith. Well, to do that, if you have your confession, open up to paragraph 2 of chapter 21, and I'll just read this one more time and then we'll dive in. Paragraph 2, chapter 21. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines, or obey such commands out of conscience, is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an implicit faith, an absolute and blind obedience, is to, des is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. All right, well, there we see again the term implicit faith, which the confession rejects. It also, along with that, mentions an absolute and blind obedience. And the, the connection between the two is that if your faith is an implicit faith, as, as to hope to an owl, an owl reigns in darkness. God's, God's light shines and sends the owl away, but this is kind of getting at that ignorance, right? This ignorance is, is, is supported by this idea of implicit faith. But what exactly is implicit faith? Well, before we ask that question, let me first remind you what we, what we believe to be the nature of faith, properly speaking. The Reformers taught that there are three constituent elements of saving faith. Um, there may indeed be other things called faith, but they are not saving faith if they lack all three. Saving faith, as I've said many times in the past, is composed of, as the Reformers would say, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, or in English, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And all three must be present in faith for it to be saving. And indeed, the crucial one, we might say the heart or the essence of faith, is trust. This is why our confession says, I think it's in chapter 14 on saving faith, um, I think it says the principal acts of faith. It's like the main thing is, um, what is it, resting, receiving, and, and another one. But but that's getting at the idea that the, the main act is the, the fiducia part, the trust part. Those other things are necessary, 
but really trust is the heart so that if you only have knowledge and assent but not trust, you don't have saving faith. Um, to, to, to explain what this means, um, many, many believe that Christ is a Savior, right? I think if you were to ask a lot of the children in our church, um, maybe those who, who even have more of a concept of the Bible and stuff, not just little ones. I, I ask Carlos now, who is Jesus? And he says, the Son of God. He doesn't know what I'm really talking about. Not yet. Um, but some of the older kids, they, they know more about Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. And I think many of them truly assent to that. They believe that is true, yet they have not placed their faith in him in the sense that they have not placed their trust in him. They see him as the Savior, but they have not yet come to him by trust. Does that make sense? Um, and so if you don't have that, um, that's, that's lacking. Oh, this is why I'm confused, Jason. Just kidding, Jason. Jason printed my, my Sunday school as a favor, and he printed it back to back, and I always, I get so thrown off. Um, another kind of faith, if, if it just has um, knowledge and assent, we call that historical faith, historical faith. Um, and what it really means is, is you, you assent really to the truth of, of the history of the gospel. You believe all those things are true, yet you yourself have not placed saving trust in Christ. Um, that's called uh, historical faith, um, and that is what I would say many of the children in the church, they have historical faith, but we're praying for them to have saving faith, right? Um, however, all of this, even saving faith, is, uh, has a component of knowledge, you cannot trust that which you don't assent to or believe is true. That makes sense. You can't trust in the gospel if you don't believe it's true. But you can't believe it's true if you don't even know about it, if you've not even heard about it, right? Paul says in Romans 10:4, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So all this to say, faith and knowledge are not the same thing. They're not exactly the same thing. To believe and to know are not necessarily the same thing, yet they are so inextricably linked that even at times, faith and knowledge, as we'll see, are kind of taken as one at times, though technically that we don't say they're the same thing. Therefore, the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 21, what is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, assent, but also an assured confidence or trust which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others but to me also remission of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God merely of grace and only for the sake of Christ's merits." So notice again, um, it's, it's not only a certain knowledge, it's an assured confidence, but it does definitely have a knowledge component. Next, we should, we should make another uh, important distinction here before we even get to the Roman view, because it could, it could perhaps, we could perhaps 
confuse the Roman view with another view of faith, historical faith, um, and how it was used by some Orthodox Protestants, though I would, I would not agree with them uh, in this regard. And we don't want to confuse that. They're by no means saying the same thing. Again, this distinction is between historical faith and saving faith. This became a disagreement uh, originally with the Presbyterians on one side and the Congregationalists, among whom the Baptists were, on the other. The Presbyterians argued that the only kind of faith necessary for church membership was historical faith, which is really just assenting to the truth of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian religion. Um, Now, historically, that was sufficient for Presbyterians to be a member in good standing of the church. You have to have a good knowledge of the fundamentals. You've been catechized, uh, and you are not living openly in sin. Then you could join a church. That's not really the case with most Presbyterians today. Most Presbyterians... um, really after the fall of of Presbyterianism in the Westminster Assembly. The Westminster Assembly and the Confession was never really put in place in England. Um, And after that, it's no longer, it doesn't have, you know, state backing. It's kind of this other thing. And so they really move away from that more to a congregational position, which is now what they have, that for membership in in a Presbyterian church, unless, I don't know, you're some hardcore, like, Scottish kind of Presbyterian or something, Um, they require saving faith for adults to be members. Earlier, the kind argued by the Westminster divines was that to be a a saving, uh, to have saving, I'm sorry, to have membership in a church, you just had to have historical faith. You had to be orthodox and not living scandalously. And again, this is because church and state are kind of more or less one with another. Um, So you can have the large majority of the population still being members of the church in an outward sense, though they're not believers. But with congregationalism, that's really separated, and so they, they, they kind of don't go together. The congregationalists, on the other hand, argued that not only was historical faith necessary for membership, but saving faith as well. Now, of course, if they were... Baptist congregationalists, they had that, that one inconsistency that the children of believers, as long as they had saving faith, they were still members of the visible church, though they could not partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, and really, this, that controversy, that inconsistency, that tension um, would later really be hashed out in New England, um, with which what they call the halfway covenant, which was kind of a, a moving back in some ways, towards Presbyterianism, because you, you, you kind of go towards one or the other. It's, it's, it's hard to keep that, um, that there. Well, that's historical faith. It's not saving faith. It does not include fiducia, but it does have knowledge and even assent. Well, for Rome, faith is not trust, okay? Although they would say, uh, yeah, there is a trust element, they don't really define faith as fiducia, as trust. Nor does it even necessarily contain knowledge. It's really just assent, and really a bare assent. You're you're almost like, you're not saying, I believe this is true. You're saying, I agree to believe to be true, whatever 
the church believes, right? It's, it's almost just an agreement to believe rather than a truly believing something is true. Now, I say it's a bare assent because, again, uh, the Presbyterians who argued that membership in the church was only required a, a, a historical faith, they mean an assent that knows truth revealed in the Word of God. When Rome uses assent, they mean it in a, more in the sense of ignorance. That's why I said, if you were to bump into a Presbyterian and they were to, maybe in the 1640s, and they were to say, well, only, you know, assent is, is necessary to the truth, so you'd be like, that's Roman. Well, no, they don't mean it in the same sense. That's, that's why I've said that. For Rome, it is a bare assent. There's not a knowledge component necessarily. It's, as I said, almost more of an agreement to believe whatever the Catholic Church believes. Now, here's the, here's the distinction. They teach that this bare assent is not just sufficient for church membership, it's sufficient for salvation, right? You can be saved by simply saying, well, whatever the church believes, I, I agree to believe that. And for them, that's saving. Not only did you have to have an assent of knowledge to be a, a member of a Presbyterian church in the 1640s, but they would never say that that historical faith um, was enough for salvation. They would never go that far. But Rome goes that far and even says it's just a bare assent, right? Implicit faith. Whatever the church believes, I implicitly believe that. One famous uh, Roman apologist, Robert Bellarmine, in our readings of John Davenant, we're going to see him inter interact with Bellarmine a lot. In fact, um, one brother writes of Bellarmine, Bellarmine, it is likely that never has a person had so many volumes written against him as Bellarmine. They are numbered into the several hundreds. Reading the names of authors who refuted Bellarmine is something like reading a who's who's list of the times. Um, all, oh, man. And he wasn't even a Dominican. He was a Jesuit, like, oh, like the Arminian version of the Catholic Church. Um, and, and so they wrote against him a lot, and we'll see Davenant interacting with Bellarmine a lot. But listen to what Bellarmine says of faith. Justifying faith is not so much knowledge as assent. So you're like, well, okay, you need knowledge in order to assent to it. But he says it's not even really knowledge, it's just a bare assent, right? In fact, he goes on to say, faith is even better defined by ignorance than knowledge. So it's an ignorant assent. It's a blind obedience, as our confession says. Contrary to this, the Reformed, and I imagine the Lutherans probably too, I, I'm not too sure, they defined faith as, as having um, a component of knowledge that was absolutely necessary for faith. There are many ways to demonstrate this from Scripture. I've done this a bit before, so I, I don't know that I'll belabor it in the same ways, but I do want to demonstrate um, how closely related faith and knowledge are before we move on. Um, the first place I want to show you, it's actually one of my favorite passages to demonstrate this. Turn to Isaiah 53, verse 11. This is a common proof text by Protestants to demonstrate the, 
the truth of this. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Speaking of the Messiah, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now, here's the important part. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now, just stop there. The part I want to focus on is where it says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now, we could simplify that even further. The phrase, to make many to be accounted righteous, is simply the same thing as saying, shall justify many. To make someone to be accounted righteous is to justify them, right? So, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, justify many. Here, the righteous one is identified as the servant of God, the, the Messiah, more to the point, Jesus Christ. Isaiah says he will justify many by his knowledge. Now, the phrase, his knowledge, most likely refers not to Christ's own knowledge, not what Christ knows, but rather the knowledge of Christ, okay? So by the knowledge of him, he shall justify many. Well, that's interesting because every Reformation Day, we celebrate sola fide, not sola notitia, right? We say that justification is by faith alone. Justification is not by knowledge so how could this be the case? Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, Why are we said to be justified by knowledge, since everywhere the Scripture says that it is by faith, and usually faith is made the instrument in our justification? Very good question, Thomas Manton. Because the first act of faith is knowledge. Therefore, he concludes, that faith mentioned here is knowledge or an apprehension of Christ, and therefore it is expressed by such a term, the knowledge of him. William Perkins says of the same passage, by knowledge is meant faith grounded upon knowledge, whereby we know and are assured that Christ and his benefits belong to us. So right there, you're, you're already seeing in justification, faith and knowledge go hand to hand. Next, uh, briefly survey a host of texts with me that are all interrelated. We could really go down a rabbit hole with all these, but I've tried to really summarize it again. But, oh man, the connections in Scripture. Once you start to see all this, it's like so cool. First, turn with me to Exodus 3.7. Exodus 3.7. says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now, as far as I can tell, this is the first time in all of scripture that these three verbs go together, seeing, hearing, and knowing. He says, I have seen, heard, and I know. Let me ask you this. What is the relationship between those three? Seeing, hearing, and knowing. 
How do they go together? What you see and what you hear is what you know. Yeah. In many ways, we would say that these, these are anthrop- anthropomorphisms, right? God does not have eyes that see or ears that hear, yet they're, they're expressing even more fully the concept that God knows their sufferings, right? They're, they're kind of um, filling out. It's an even fuller way. It's a, a loquacious way, we could say, of saying, I know something. Now, <clears throat> what's, the, what's the relationship then between metaphors for knowing? Even though you kind of already said it. What do you think? The reason why seeing and hearing are appropriate analogies for knowing is because, very truly, in real life, our senses are one of the ways that we actually know things. We know how someone looks. We know the sound of someone's voice. We recognize a melody of a song. We know those things because we've experienced them through our senses. Now, the senses are not the only ways we know things, but they are one of the main ways that we know things in this world. Furthermore, we often speak of knowing or knowledge with the senses as a metaphor. For example, we might say, do you see what I'm saying? Do you understand me, right? Or if you finally, if something clicks, we might say, oh, now I see. Or even think about it. What is a a picture oftentimes for something clicking? A light bulb going off. Ah, light. The darkness is gone. I can now see, right? Um, And the reason, again, is because the senses are one of the ways that we arrive at knowledge. Now, interestingly, I just want to throw this in. Sometimes in Scripture, we see this connection between knowledge and the senses, but it's not even just hearing or seeing, but it's other senses as well. And it helps us to understand the meaning of these texts. For example, 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us, in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere, right? There's the knowledge of Christ, and it's, it's likened to a fragrance that people smell. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. I would say there, those who can smell the beautiful fragrance of life uh, in the knowledge of Christ are those who have saving faith right? Those who don't, they don't smell the beauty of him. It's, it's, it's actually death to the flesh, okay? Or think of Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience, know me, taste, I am good, right? Know the goodness of the Lord. Again, taste and even smell can be used to express this sometimes. Um, Now, the reason why seeing and hearing are the most common ways of describing knowing is because those are really the main two senses that we use. They are the most important senses. Um, This is why when Jesus comes, he gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, but he nowhere restores the sense of smelling to those who can't smell, right? Like, it's a tragedy if you can't smell, right? That would, you know, because it's it's great to smell, Um, 
it's an even bigger tragedy if you can't see or hear because we really rely on those so much more, right? Um, and so that's why those are the most common metaphors because those are really the chief senses that we use. All this to say, knowing, seeing, and hearing are often found in Scripture. And they're kind of all getting at the same point, knowledge. Well, how does this connect to faith? Well, I would say that those three verbs, sometimes altogether, sometimes not, sometimes using slightly different but related terms, maybe not know but understand, things that are kind of related, those three terms are one of Scripture's most common ways of speaking of faith, okay? For example, turn with me now to Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4. Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now, notice first, actually, the irony of what he says. And this is an irony we see later on in Scripture, that they have physical eyes to see, but not eyes of the heart to see. In fact, I would say Moses goes out of his way to highlight this irony by actually mentioning not just that they saw, but they saw with their physical eyes. He says, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. Verse 3, the great trials that your eyes saw. Verse 4, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now, how does this connect to faith? Well, in Romans chapter 11, Paul quotes that verse, Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. Actually, he makes what we call in exegesis an intertext, an intertext. An intertext is when an apostle um, will sometimes take, you see the apostles do this all the time, They'll take two or more scriptures from the Old Testament and combine them into one uh, new quotation. They're not twisting scripture. What they're actually doing is, is because they're seeing that two things are related, they're kind of highlighting that, like, look, these two things are related. Um, and I, I think they actually are, are picking up on the fact that even for Old Testament uh, writers, they were like consciously also hearkening back to older texts. Um, I think that's kind of the case here. But Paul, in Romans 11, quotes Deuteronomy 29.4, but he makes an intertext when he does so. When he quotes this, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. We'll look at verse 8. Romans chapter 11, verse 8, it says, 
God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, the first part of that quote, for the most part, is actually from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it. For the Lord has poured upon you a spirit of deep sleep. Now, the Septuagint translates that as stupor, uh, uh, a state of unconsciousness, which is getting at the same idea of a state of deep sleep, right? You're, You're knocked out. The Lord has poured upon you a spirit of deep sleep and closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Paul combines that with Deuteronomy 29.4, and we see especially in the fact that hearing is mentioned in Paul's quotation, because it's mentioned in Deuteronomy 29.4, but not in 29.10. Furthermore, we clearly see the allusion to Deuteronomy 29.4 in the last phrase down to this very day, which echoes the words of Moses, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What is Paul doing here? Obviously, I think the texts are related. Um, I actually think, and I I haven't found a commentator to say this yet. Uh, I need to go to the library. I have some stuff I want to research. I actually think Isaiah is consciously making a reference to Deuteronomy 29.4. Because in Isaiah, not only are knowing, hearing, and seeing used um, to describe faith, but often when Israel does not believe, there is this irony that they have eyes, but not eyes of the heart. They have physical ears, but not ears of the heart. And they have actual minds to know but their minds spiritually are hardened. Um, That's an irony I think we see in Deuteronomy 29.4, and I think Isaiah picks up on that. And interestingly, if you look at just the three verbs of knowing, seeing, and hearing um, in terms of Israel's hardness of heart, it occurs in Deuteronomy 29.4, and then you don't see them again until the book of Isaiah. That's a big gap, and I, I I think there's some significance there, okay? Um, okay, I think first, the, the thing that Paul is doing here is showing again that this has always been the case with physical Israel. From their time in the wilderness to the times of Isaiah, even down to Paul's own time, the vast majority of Jews have not had eyes of the heart to see, meaning they don't have faith. In fact, it's interesting, um, Paul uses the phrase, to this very day, um, several times to actually highlight that it's still in his own day. We saw this, actually, I just kind of passed over it, in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 through 15. He says, but their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, that could just be Paul saying to this day, but he repeats it twice, and elsewhere Paul uses that, referencing back to Deuteronomy 29. I wonder, even though it's not explicit there in 2 Corinthians 3, if even Paul has that, um, that passage in mind. 
But getting back to Romans 11, the other thing that Paul is doing by quoting Isaiah is linking up Deuteronomy 29.4 with a whole host of texts that use the concept of a lack of knowing, a lack of hearing, and a lack of seeing to describe Israel's unbelief. For example, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. This is what we call a locus classicus. It's, it's a definitive, a proof text sounds kind of lame because that makes it sound like you're just using it for your purposes. But it's the most definitive passage really in the New Testament to speak of Israel's unbelief and hardness of heart, okay? So look at verses 8 through 10. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying to me, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and, or I'm sorry, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're doing sword drills. Some of you understood that. <laughs> Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 15. <laughs> okay, <laughs> not that literally, Gretchen. Then did the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, To you it has been given to know, think of that, know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear. Now, uh, when we just read from the Hebrew, it says, keep on hearing, right? But this is probably from the Septuagint. You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, it's also quoted partially in Mark, but the really important one is in John chapter 12. Turn with me in John chapter 12. John 12, 37 through 40. John 12, 37 through 40. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, which is Isaiah 53, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. There it's specifically linked to their lack of faith. Lastly, turn with me to Acts 28. Acts 28, verses 24 through 27. Acts 28, 24 through 27. Speaking of Paul in Rome, speaking to the Jews, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. We see time and again that Isaiah 6, 8 through 10 is used to describe uh, the hardness of heart and lack of faith of Israel, right? And yet God is saying there, you will not see, you will not hear, you will not understand. But it's speaking of a lack of faith. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 11, when Paul quotes from Deuteronomy and Isaiah, it's in the context of an extended discussion through Romans chapter 9 through 11, which discusses Israel's unbelief. For example, he says in Romans 9, 30 through 32, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Romans 10, 6 through 11, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one, is, one confesses and is saved. But the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And then lastly, Romans eleven nineteen 19 through 20, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand through faith. So the whole connection is connected with Israel's, first of all, with election, but also because They've not been elected, their hearts are hard, and they have a lack of faith. And it's in that context that Paul quotes from Isaiah and from Deuteronomy 29.4, speaking of knowing, seeing, and hearing, but it speaks of faith. Okay? Does that make sense? All of this to say, all throughout Scripture, there's an incredibly strong connection between believing and knowing. They are not the same thing, to believe and to know are different, but they are intricately related. 
Therefore, the Catholic idea that faith is a blind assent, better described by ignorance rather than knowledge, is, is entirely, entirely unbiblical. Now, with the time we have left, which is not much, um, I do want us to add a few helpful caveats to explain even further what we mean by this and what we don't mean. And here I'm going to use Chiriton quickly as our guide. He says, the question is not whether faith is assent, which is acknowledged on both sides. We both agree that assent is part of faith, though ours is an assent to knowledge. There's is a blind assent. But Turretin says, we're not denying faith has an assent component. But that's not the issue. He continues, nor is the question whether faith is a full and perfect knowledge of mysteries, both as to the reason and the fact, so that we ought to believe nothing which we do not clearly and distinctly perceive. For as most gospel mysteries in the greatest degree escape the grasp of reason, they can never be clearly and distinctly perceived by us as to the why or the how but only as to the fact, the what, because they are truly revealed. What he's saying there is there are so many gospel mysteries, the incarnation. We understand the what, the fact of the incarnation, because Scripture clearly receives it, uh, reveals it. So we assent to it that it is true. But we also confess as to the how, as to the how of the hypostatic union, Man, that's good luck with that. Um, that's, that's something we're not even going to grasp entirely, even into eternity, even when our minds are glorified. Because there's just something that escapes the limits of human reason with that. So we're not saying that, oh yeah, faith is knowledge, therefore we totally understand all the mysteries of God, because then you would just have to be God, right? Church is saying, look, we're not saying that. Furthermore, he says, we do not deny that faith can be called, in a certain sense, implicit, as I read a few weeks ago, both in children and the uninstructed, who have only an obscure knowledge, and in the more advanced, in whom the light is always mixed with darkness. Even those who are advanced, uh, even for them, they don't, there's, there's more of, of the knowledge of God that they could know, who often can reach only uh, to the fact, but do not rise to the why. Thus, the faith of Old Testament fathers could be called obscure and implicit with respect to ours on account of the obscurity of the revelation. But, he says, the question is whether faith in its conception includes knowledge. If not a full still a true and certain knowledge in its own order. So even though there are many ways in which our knowledge of God's revelation is deficient, and even though there are many ways in which our mind can't grasp the entire how, even of what is revealed, nevertheless, our knowledge is still a genuine, true knowledge as weak and deficient as it often is. Therefore, Turretin says, we hold that faith includes knowledge in its conception, not that faith is absolutely the same as knowledge 
or that to believe is the same as to understand, right? But that it includes knowledge in its conception. Furthermore, lastly, we can even say, I think, that there is a sense in which our faith is implicit insofar as we agree to believe, not whatever the church tells us, whatever God reveals in his word. We implicitly believe that because it's God's word, right? Even in that sense, we can say faith is implicit, but even then, it's not a blind ascent. It is an ascent to what God has revealed. It's not ignorance. Therefore, we, we reject that um, along with our confession, and we are running out of time very quickly, but are there any questions before we're done? Some, some people have told me they need a, like 15 seconds to process questions, but I often just end too quickly. Anybody? All right. You are dismissed, and then, Lord willing, next week we will begin to look at chapter 22 on worship. All right, thank you.